Welcome to Modern Figures Podcast, hosted by Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen, where we are elevating the voices of Black women in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. This podcast exists to highlight the stories of Black women in computing, to inspire high schoolers and the young at heart, and to dispel the myths and preconceptions about Black women in computing. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. This season is generously supported by NCWIT and CRAWP. The National Center for Women and Information Technology, or NCWIT, is a nonprofit community that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase the influential and meaningful participation of girls and women in technology. And the Computing Research Association's Committee on Widening Participation in Computing, or CRAWP, endeavors to increase the success and participation of underrepresented groups in computing research and education at all levels. Hi, everyone. Today we have an extra, extra special guest. We have Dr. Ruthie Lyle. She is an innovation and thought leader who has earned over 220 issued patents. And she is believed to have the most inventions for any Black woman in the world. So just let that sit for a second. The whole world. Like total mundo. (laughs) So The universe. The universe. (laughs) The universe, the multiverse, all the verses. So (laughs) she is from Roosevelt, Long Island, which has some unique characteristics that she can tell you about a little later. Her current position is a principal technical patent architect at NVIDIA, and she's also leading the diversity and inventorship effort. She went to Northeastern University, where she received a bachelor's in electrical engineering. She received her master's in electrophysics from NYU, her PhD in electrical engineering from NYU, and then Even more recently, she earned an MS in technology commercialization at UT Austin School of Business. So she began her technical career at IBM. Side note, this is where I met her when I was an intern back in 2005. And she even encouraged me. She made me me feel old, (laughs) y'all. Old is a state of mind. We are young. That's true. (laughs) And she even encouraged me to work on a patent with her. And I really, really just appreciated that experience. Um, After IBM, she transitioned to USAA, where she was there for about a decade. Um, Some other fun, notable things is that she passed the patent bar and became a registered U.S. Patent and Trademark Office patent agent with the credentials to prosecute patent applications before the USPTO. She's one of the first African-Americans to hold the title of IBM Master Inventor and lead multiple IBM enterprise-level patent review boards. If that was not enough, she proposed and created the Pathways to AI program at NYU to explore under unserved students to quality AI research experiences. Her current interests include AI for good and augmented intelligence. She is available for any speaking engagement that you need her for because she is certainly an inspiration. So welcome, Dr. Ruthie Lyle. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to have I'm you so here. I'm so excited you were able to make it today. Yes. <laughs> Me too. Um, I'm, I'm actually honored and and pleased to be able to participate with you guys in this today. Thank- the honor is all ours. I think when Kyla was suggesting our like high profile, big ask names, yours popped up really early for her. Yes. So <laughs> she is having a full on fangirl experience. Full on. And 
I'm very excited to learn more about you because I didn't get to meet you way back in 2005. <laughs> Gosh, time goes quickly. It really does. It really yeah. does. Um, but before we get to 2005, can you talk to us a bit about what it was like in Roosevelt, Long Island, especially growing up and, you know, if you envisioned yourself on this path that you're currently on? So um, Roosevelt, Long Island is a square mile uh, on Long Island. It's really a hamlet, which means it doesn't have its own uh, representation, legislative representation. And my parents um, in the 50s and 60s, my father was in the Air Force, was stationed on Long Island. So we were, our family was really like a Southern family that's transplanted North. And we were just like um, so many other families where our parents were going north for better opportunities. And so that's, you know, how I came to Roosevelt. When my parents moved there, it was a Jewish community and had great schools. But you know what sometimes can happen when we move in, you know, they move out. White flight. By the time I came along, my parents were putting us in private school. So I can remember being the little one or two black girls in a private school and, you know, just what we had to do because the schools weren't that great. But due to some circumstances, we had to go to public school. So I ended up at Roosevelt High School, which was, um, although we've had a lot of famous people come out of that school, it was a really underserved community. But our high school had a program that was another high school in Long Island, which was Clark Trust, which was a prestigious kind of nice area school. We had these pre, this pre-engineering program. So one thing I found out how to exist in the underserved community is being a smart class. <laughs> then you don't have to worry about fighting in the hallway because you're almost a school within a school and kind of separated in some sense. And uh, so that's what happened to me. I got put in advanced placement, had a chance to take this test that was to see if there was any kind of aptitude towards engineering it was either electrical, mechanical or architectural. And I, and I did well in electrical. So that started me on a three-year route where I had classes that were related to engineering as part of my high school classes. And then we had a really great high school teacher. His name was Hamid Mirandi from Iran, which was unusual. And he came to us along from Stony Brook. So Stony Brook University. So I took classes at Stony Brook as a result when I was in high school um, because of that program. So that's, that's cool. what Roosevelt was like. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. That program available, you know, even though like, you know, you're more advanced than I am in terms of years. I think, think, think (laughs) it's true. I think back to like me being in school and like, there were still people who didn't know like magnet programs were a thing or that classes were an option or how that trajectory like if you don't take certain classes, it makes oh, yeah. it really hard for you to be successful in a field like engineering or computer science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah. true. So I think even in this, like the, this time as a parent, when I'm, my son is in ninth grade, he's taking um, honest physics, algebra-based physics class and wondering why he's Already? the only black boy. Yeah. Okay. 
Look, she yeah, had three years of electrical engineering before college. Like, he's gonna be ready. <laughs> I know, but this is something I, I want the audience to know that excellence in engineering comes with experience in these classes very early and a strong understanding of the content. Then you have freedom to be visionary, mm. to think about what might be. But if you're struggling just to understand like the basic calculus or the basic things, it's a lot harder. And so I don't, I think within the, the black community, we don't get on the bandwagon early enough. And I think we see that in other communities, in particular Asian communities, they start their children much earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's just experience. Yeah. It, that's all. That's all yeah. it is. And some people think too, oh, you know, they'll get into it in college. But then once you get to college, you're trying to figure out the complicated math and the complicated science and how they relate. And at that point, if you have even a hint of a challenge, you start to think, okay, nobody in this room looks like me. Maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this versus having that solid foundation beginning in high school. Thank God for Nesby. Because that's forever. Oh yeah, I joined as Nesby in uh, 1987. Michelle what? Washington Lazama. Yeah, who, I think she's she was my chapter president. Oh wow! And she that is and cool. I can remember. I remember clearly. We we went to a regional conference, and one of my good friends, Donna, she's from Florida. She didn't she didn't bring a coat to Boston. Oh my god! And Michelle <laughs> took her Michelle took her coat off and gave it to her, and I knew. Oh. Nesby had something. So at a predominantly white institution, Nesby was like the lifeline. Wow. Um, my friends that I had from undergrad, you know, I still will ping them. We still talk and it was a community. It was very strong. I love Nesby. I wish the alumni section of Nesby was stronger. Yeah. But yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So yeah. for our listeners, Nesby is the National Society of Black Engineers. Mm-hmm. And it is a student-run professional organization for Black engineers. Yes, student. Just, it's the largest student-run organization. Yeah, and just to tell you, I mean, we we had so many of people going to do great things. Michelle Zama was, I think, she's the, the director of Gem now. Mm-hmm. She the was. graduate. I'm not sure if she's still in she's, that role, but she did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Gary S. May, who's a chancellor, mm-hmm. he yep. was like the he was like the national president at the time. Wow. So, yeah. A lot of big names. Michelle is now the CEO of NACME. The- oh, that's oh, right. Yeah. National Action Council for Minorities in Engineering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what she's yeah. doing. So, you know, they keep going yeah. up. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, she's doing great work. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned NYU and Nesby and having that community there. And, you know, so eventually you went on to get your master's. So like, did that group help encourage you to go to grad school or were people? I actually joined Nesby at Northeastern in Boston. Oh, that's right. And I was very strong. That was like a community. um, Let's just say the uh, the kind of community that helped each other get through, get out. Um, Mm. And then I don't know, our class just did really well. And (laughs) We, for the first time, had people in Etta Kappa New, the Electrical Engineering Honor Society. We, wow. A school of 40,000. We didn't have like two, three people in it. It is something. Wow. But, um, you know, um, while I was at Northeastern, I had an opportunity, two things. We had a, a black uh, PhD in physics. I think he did particle physics on loan to us from IBM. IBM used to have this program they loan out. Folks to the university, his name was Daniel Smith. He was at um, 
the, the University of uh, South Carolina in Orangeburg. I believe that's the name of the school. He left um, IBM after working with us. He realized he wanted to work with the young people. Um, but we had he ran these programs to bring us up in in the different areas that we needed to be successful. And so when I think of somebody who really helped us as students, that role was significant. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, you know, sessions where we worked problems. I mean, we just, we got together on Saturday and we just did problems. He created exams in advance for us to practice problems. Wow. And we did that. And it was the good connection was he was from Mississippi with the, he has a Southern draw and he would, uh, tell us you know you have to you have to look at units you have to derive do not memorize and i asked him oh where's your family from i mean because you're like <laughs> so smart you're the only black phd in a in engineering or uh, he was actually in pure science that i ever met and he was like i'm from mississippi and i you know went to school in a one room schoolhouse and it's possible and he went and went on to howard the second significant yeah, wow. it is. Shout out to Dr. Daniel Smith. I hope he gets to hear this. Um, yes. And then um, when I got in my senior year, I, I realized like in my shirt, it's all about God's electromagnetics. And I mean God in this specifically. Um, I realized that that was a class I was good in. So uh, there was a professor, Philip Seraphim. He was Greek. And I would, he would be in a lecture and he would be deriving and I'll just be like, oh, and just like start like deriving with him. Like, oh, this is the next step. And I don't know where that came from. God had to give that. Wow. And he said to me, you should consider graduate school. And so I looked at several schools and I said, well, no, I had said coming in after my first year, I'm going to try to get this undergrad degree and get out of here and, <laughs> and make me some money. Right. Forget this. This is too much stress. Because <laughs> it right. was stressful. There weren't many black wom- women, um, even at big schools like that. And uh, I, I ended up doing a research project with uh, Anthony Maddox. I think he's the chancellor now, or he's he's in, he's on the West Coast. So he left Northeast and then Gilda Barabino, she was mm-hmm. faculty. Yes. And I used to see her in the, in the you know, I elevator. She's so sweet. And she was the chemical, she wasn't even electrical, you know, it was only two black faculty in the whole engineering school. So like, can we come over? Can we just hang out with you? And she used to always be encouraging. But um, Professor Maddox allowed me opportunity to do a research topic, a research study for electromagnetics in undergrad. And so it was basically using electromagnetic fields to kill cancer cells. And this was almost like a survey of the literature to understand you know, how people had used fields in the past and then kind of write that. And I just remember him always saying, you got to rewrite this. You got to rewrite this. And I'm like, oh, why did I do this? But then in the end, I said, oh, wow, I I think research might be interesting. And so all this happened at the same time was Professor Seraphim was like, you should go to graduate school. And I applied. Um, Tandon School of Engineering at NYU was once called Polytechnic University. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, he recommended that school because it had a lot of famous people in electromagnetics, um, uh, you know, that did wave guide, all this big stuff, especially during wartime. And so I applied to Georgia Tech, um, Polytechnic University and Stony Brook because, you know, Stony Brook was at home and I applied for a master's program. I never applied really. I wasn't thinking about the PhD. I said, oh, I'll get my master's and come out and, um, 
I didn't go through, I didn't go through gym. Like a lot of people went through gym and got to get funding. That wasn't my route. And so I, when I applied, um, Polly was the one school that reached back and said, Hey, uh, have you considered doing a PhD wow. and we have funding? And so they flew me, which was a big deal as a student from Boston back to New York. Mm -hmm. And, um, I got to meet my advisor, Spencer Quo, his advisor, Bernie Cho, and meet the people in the department. And they said, like, if you're willing to put the effort, we, we have funding. So I got the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, um, money to go to school that came with the stipend. And so I'm like, okay. And so then Stony Brook came- yeah, she yeah, got, got a, stipend, a little bit. Yeah, it for for a student, it felt like a lot. It was yeah. like back then, it was it was over a thousand dollars a month. So that was more than if I worked. Um, you know, minimum wage was like three dollars mm-hmm. or something <laughs> back then. So that was a long time back. So it was it was good money, and the only uh, trade off is I had to live at home because the Long Island campus didn't have dorms, but it wasn't bad. My mom cooked breakfast every day, you know. Aww. Yeah, she did. And if I didn't do things like my hair, she got worried. Are you okay? Are you okay? Oh. <laughs> she had never seen me in like this distressed oh uh, studying setting. So, you know, I had to act normal. My family's like, she can't do my hair. And I could not do what my Asian colleagues could do, which is wear the same thing every day right. to the lab. Because like, people don't. People yeah. gonna notice. <laughs> yeah, mom was like, you better put mom something on. Gonna right. Yeah. Mom's gonna notice. Thank like, God for no my mom. I re- my mom and my dad. They were really supportive. I mean, you had that built in community already at home to be like, okay, yeah. we're gonna check in on you and make sure you are doing well. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's but um so so yes. you know, um going to go you know, making this so oh yeah. So I was telling you NYU offered the, the money. And, um, so I wrote Stony Brook, wrote Georgia Tech and was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with, um, Polly. Georgia Tech was like, well, that's fine. Cause we don't have any money, <laughs> right? You can pay your own way. Oh, so, no. yeah. yeah. So I think Georgia Tech has something going on with feeling like they had the most black engineers of any engineering school. So they didn't have to worry about everybody. I think you um, are correct. Yeah. Right. Stony Brook came back and offered me the provost scholarship. Boost wow. for the masters. So I thought about it and I said, well, you know, here are these two guys who based on what I submitted is willing to offer me a, to do the PhD. So I did it, uh, good and bad. The good part was, Hey, I have funding. The bad part was I didn't investigate what the research would be in electro beyond just general electromagnetics. Mm-hmm. And so it was funded by the Air Force. So I ended up doing work looking at wave propagation in the ionosphere because that's something of interest mm-hmm. to the Air Force, which was good. I got to spend summers at Hanscom Air Force Base doing research there. One, you know, one of the, the I, think, I guess he was the deputy director, was on my, my, thesis, my thesis committee. And so all those things were good. But when I, I didn't think about the full road, it's like once you start graduate school and I would say to anybody, and it's different now, you know, pick an area that when you get ready to go out into a company, you're an established leader. Like I went to IBM. They don't care about ionosphere, ionospheric physics. They yeah. see it as a research skill and you will transfer the skill to something that we do, which my first role there was a, an electromagnetic compatibility 
But imagine the power if I took my thesis and took it into a company. Mm-hmm. And like there are companies that do it today, like where you can actually have that real tight coupling. So you're not like, it's not separate. And I would advise people to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's two edges to that too. Cause like you said, the PhD is definitely a license to say, I know how to do research. I know how to read. I know how to solve a problem, but mm-hmm. you know, it definitely is more lucrative and probably um, a more fulfilling use of your time. If you go directly into a company or a setting where you can use that, um, that research yeah. immediately. Yeah. That is cool. So it sounds like I'm just I'm just in awe that you had this one professor who was like, you know what, you need to do grad school. And they said, hey, not just master's, PhD, because you usually don't hear that story. We usually hear the reverse where people apply for PhD and then they're told, uh, you can do a master's and we'll yeah. see. So I think that's pretty common um, that people are told like, well, you know what, well, we'll find out if you actually have these skills or not. Wow. I think one, I think so being at predominantly white institution, right? The professors, even though like I did the research, he was an African-American professor, but the professor who said, I think you should go to graduate school. He was Greek. He was, you know, not like the the normal, you know, American white person. So maybe he didn't see me the same way. And then the, the, my advisor is from Taiwan. And so was his advisor. He passed away, Bernie Cho. Um, they're both from Taiwan. So maybe they didn't see me like maybe, you know, someone else in a white institution might. And so yeah. Like they might along. be free from all that American based bias. Bias. Those yeah. beliefs about black people. And they're like, look, even I see an awesome researcher. Even my high school teacher <laughs> from Iran who was like, oh, you should do stuff at Stony Brook. Even though he knew we were in an underserved school and that school lost him because they mm-hmm. want him to go get teacher certification. And he was producing all of his students were either going to law school. I mean, they were high wow. achievers. It's like, how do we see? We have to know how to have a balance between certification and actual demonstrated excellence. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so my early, my path was influenced by people who were non-Americans. I guess I never thought about it until this moment. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. Yeah, I, you were in New York, right? And it's, yeah. a, it's a mixing, melting pot of different cultures and identities. And I think you typically hear the negative side of that, right? And not the positive side of that. And in your case, it worked very much so in your favor to get right. you through higher education. The pinnacle of higher education, as people would call it. Yeah. Um, but I think... You know, I'm listening to you say all these very technical terms about electromagnetics. And I think I would want to know, like, if you could explain some of that so that we have an idea of, like, really what you were doing while you were in school. So these equations relate. (laughs) So this is a set of couple partial differential equations. They're partial because because (laughs) they're right. They have... Um, they have changed with respect to position and time. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they're partial. So it's part, but the whole lot. So for me, one thing that was exciting is to notice that God put certain things, established certain things in our universe and we just observe them. <laughs> if you have an electric charge, the charge will have a field that emanates from it. And if you bring another charge into 
vicinity, they will, if they're alike, they will repel. If they're different, they will attract. And so this whole notion of uh, a charge creating a field and these charges can be displaced with respect to time and they can form a current when you have a certain environment potential set up. So you can have a circuit, you can have current flowing. So for me, when I took electromagnetics, this notion of there are these fields, they're coupled, magnetic and electric fields are or can be coupled and we can do things with this behavior that we observe. Like we can transmit a signal uh, through an antenna um, where, uh, and we can have an, back in the day, you have the antenna tower where we just send signal and there's a radiation pattern and we can have a receiver and actually receive content. And then there's a whole level of communication like FM, AM that can go on top of that. And so I also thought that was exciting when, as a little girl, and I used to, to go through the tunnels in New York, we, we have, you know, you listen to the WBLS, that's like mm -hmm. the station. <laughs> and and you're driving through, you go through the Midtown Tunnel, we're cut off. Mm -hmm. Why do you lose the rate, the signal? There's there are these, there's a, you know, the signal propagates to a point and there's a cutoff frequency that's determined by the size of the tunnel and it goes off. These things are naturally occurring. God put these in the universe and man has learned how to understand electromagnetic and use it to our betterment. So I don't know if I went too far. But no, that was great. That, that was that's the beauty. That was that's perfect. I mean, it's a beautiful it's thing. Relatable, right? Like, yes. you're, you, you know, people probably have gone through that tunnel a thousand times or more and never thought like, well, why, do, why is that? Right. Mm -hmm. right. And well, yeah, thought, why is that? And then they were like, eh, who cares? You know? But right. Like, no, yeah. I want to know. I want to investigate. Yes, is That's a sign of a researcher. Absolutely. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> like when something happens and you can't just let it go, right? Like you got to know more. Right. You know, that, that means you want to be a researcher. Right. So speaking of, um, before we transition to your technical role, you mentioned that you had like a really great community in undergrad. Did you have that same sort of community in grad school? I know. <laughs> <laughs> no. So it depends on how you look at it. So I yeah. am the first African-American woman to earn a PhD from Polytechnic University. I don't even know if anyone has come behind me. And wow. so that school was established in 1864. We merged with NYU and it's in New York <laughs> where they're like, all black. How are y'all not finding black people? <laughs> so I, so, I mean, for grad, so I went from an environment where everyone was like my age. We had a good number of men and women, uh, to an environment where I was the only one, my advisor and most of the students in the electrical engineering program were Asian. They were from either China, Taiwan, Korea, just, just, they were just, you know, and it was one other woman. I think she was from Taiwan and she was older than me. So, um, the good thing about graduate school is I was able to be at home and I had my church at home. And then I had, you know, even though I had lost some contact with some friends from high school, I still had a new people. So it was a total different environment. And that's, that's the one thing I, I would say is not the best because that's the time when you're trying to meet your husband. You're trying to yeah, figure out these next I, steps. Yeah, girl. It's real. I, can't, it's real. I went serious. to IBM because when I, I interviewed 
Um, so I, when I interviewed, I went to Yorktown, which is Ivy mm-hmm. Research, and I had an opportunity to join a group there. But when I came to Raleigh, North Carolina, which I'm still in North Carolina now, um, the, it was a big site, 15,000 people. I saw a field, I saw basketball and softball. And I said, if they're going to be men, it's going to be here. Cause they're going to play sports. I, take this <laughs> I said, I went straight through. I, I know I want to be married and I know I want an African-American. I actually wanted a Southern guy because my fit, my father is Southern. And uh, this was the best chance it worked out to, for me too, because I met my husband at, at yep. IBM through his cousin. That is great. That so. is, I mean, you got to be strategic. Like you can't yeah. be in the desert and looking around. for water. Go where the water is. Yes. <laughs> I definitely understand you with that part. So, but, so back to the original question. So no, there was no, uh, we didn't have, there, Nesby had some undergrad students and I, mm-hmm. I you know, so it was hard to kind of relate because it's a different phase. Um, but um, no, it was not the same environment. That's why I was like, I wish the alumni version of Nesby was stronger because I should have yeah. been a Nesby alumni. But uh, yeah. But hey, you persisted. <laughs> so for me, I yeah. needed community. Like, I don't know how I would have thrived, you know, in grad school without like, even though in computer science, there were a few of us, like we, all of the... Uh, engineering PhD students kind of banded together and then we're all together. It looks like there's a bunch of us. So yeah, I don't know what I would have done. So kudos to you because I, yeah, I don't know what I would have done. But you mentioned you transitioned to IBM in in North Carolina. So how was that first role or those first sets of roles? You know, did that community part actually happen for you? Well, so Nesby gets a, um, get some more love because we had a really <laughs> we had a big group here and before mm-hmm. I came I tried to reach out to an alumni group of maybe like over 100 people in Nesby wow. and so I took a board position and helped me um build a network those people are still my friends today um so you know we did lots of events at um local schools and we worked with different groups like the black doctors and the black lawyers we did christmas events and things like that so in that sense, it helped me get started um, to build a network here. Are you like got... extroverted or mm. would you say you're not really? Uh, I'm very comfortable with me. Okay. And so, um, but I'm I'm the kind of person I click with you or I don't. Mm. And uh, luckily I have some people I click with. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a real easygoing. I, I'm a very relaxed kind of person my husband would say so very organized <laughs> but um yeah I I was fortunate to have some people with whom I'm still really good friends some of them were like godparents to my son oh. after all these years they were in my wedding and <laughs> things like that came through Nesby so yeah I moved here joined Nesby and uh, so, but in terms of the job, I think you might was going to ask more about the job. Yeah, like you're because there's definitely what you were hired to do, and then what you so ended let's up just doing. Say, I said earlier, like it's so good if you go to graduate school and you take a role directly in your space. Mm-hmm. One because you come in at a certain level in the company, and you're not like struggling to go up every little ring like everybody mm-hmm. else right and so it, it may depend greatly on the company that you're in as well but for me like I was 
you know, a first in my, in my family, really my immediate family to do the corporate route. My mother's an educator. My father never went to college and, you know, my, for the most part, you're either a teacher or a preacher, right? Or <laughs> something like that. So no one could tell me like, you know, what is a performance review? How do you pick a manager? What do you look for in a manager? And when to leave? Because mm. there's a time to leave. Yes, there um, is. <laughs> and you can't be afraid to leave. So some companies make you so intense in their culture that you never think about leaving. And um, that's not good. I think uh, you should you should come into a company with a, I'm bringing this and you're bringing this. If you don't give me the right set of experiences, then I enjoyed my time here. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> because your life, your journey, it may not be with one company. And right. I may have been that baby who was on the edge where it's like people want to do 30 years somewhere. I, I, that's not necessarily the case for me. I want to spend time with I'm growing right, and I'm getting paid and that's it. And, and it's then mutually it, beneficial. And it's mutually beneficial. And when it's time to roll, it's time to go. And it's not bad. I had to right. learn that. In fact, I learned that from my husband because he's like, you need to do something besides IBM. You know, you only, because there's so much. And I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm going to be a fellow. I'm a fellow. I'm going to be a distinguished engineer. And you know what? After talking to IBM fellows and distinguished engineers late in my career, it is not all it's cracked up to be. Mm. So don't, you know, like look around. And, and all the time, new companies like my great, my wonderful company, NVIDIA, I couldn't have, I wouldn't have never, you couldn't have, I couldn't imagine this role. So, wow. So, um, you began your foray into the patent arena while you were at IBM. So I'm curious, where did this inspiration come from? Like, were you encouraged to patent in your role? How did you get to be the most patentingest patent person? <laughs> patentingest. Whoa. That is a word. Um, so when I, when I finished um, school, I wasn't sure if I was going to do academia or industry. Mm -hmm. And um, I was tired. And <laughs> yeah. I have never met anybody. That is a more tired. complete sentence. That is the yeah, best I sentence like, I've ever heard. Um, I didn't know um, what to do industry. I, got, I was tired. <laughs> Period. And I had, Hard stop. I had a little bit of change, but that's what it was. Like now it's a little bit. Um, you know, coming in through the research, but I wasn't sure um, exactly. So I, you know, I went to, and at the National Science Foundation had a early career program at University of Wisconsin where they were trying to get people to go into academia. So I applied, I was the only black person there again, but uh -huh. I met a white woman, Jennifer, and uh, she was at Motorola. She was actually an industry that went back to do her PhD. And she ended up coming to IBM. When she came to IBM, she was like, Ruthie, we should do a patent. I was like, what's that about? And she was like, oh, come on. This is actually my first issue patent, 2001. And it was on, she said, you know a lot about electromagnetics. Can you help me draw a paper? She was working in a group that was um, these big rooms of paper. And if you draw the paper really well between ink drops, the resolution was better. And so she said, can you design something? You don't have to build it. We had some full wave tools and I just designed this cavity. And that was my first patent. Hmm. And uh, 
after that, you know, I started, um, you know, I was interested and in I, uh, what's his name? God, I his name. <laughs> this is bad, but <laughs> a black colleague, um, Jamel Lynch, Jamel mm-hmm. said to me, Ruthie, we should, black people should be doing patents. And we, we got a little group together and that group, we started working. But what I found is like the group was working so slow, like they wouldn't do, it would take forever to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And I started, I got an invitation to sit from an older white gentleman at IBM said, Hey, you should sit on the hardware review board. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm really qualified. See, this is mindset, right? I was like, I don't, my PhD is not in hardware. So no, you don't, he's like, we see you here all the time. You're always here. You should join the board and learn how we review because it used Mm -hmm. to be like you present to the board, you come out, they close doors, they have discussion. And so that was my first step in really getting experience on how things evaluated, how does legal work at IBM, how do we work with outside counsel? And then I, you know, later went on to actually run boards. I became board chair of several boards along the way. Um, so, but this, I don't even remember that guy's name. He was like, Hey, <laughs> we are, you're always present. You're always here. Why don't you join the board? And then when I got married, my husband's like, you should just work on your own. Just try it on your own. And I did. And I think that year I made like 15 plateaus at IBM. You know, cause it's like. We were, she was we, just issuing them out yeah, the was, gate. Like, like her desk was full of Ruthie Lau, hatting yes. is patent person in the world. <laughs> I, <laughs> she beat herself, what? and then she beat her own record. Like just yeah. all of these awards. It had it had several. It had two appeals. One, I was in a job that wasn't a research job, so I really was like learning how to do stuff to ship products, but I wasn't um, like growing and learning about new technologies. So I realized I was uh, um, emerging technology junkie. That's what I called mm-hmm. myself. I like to. I started reading MIT innovation. Certain uh, certain periodic I read every day, and I started. But with the patents allowed me to do that, even though my role wasn't big enough. Hmm. And so I started doing that, and um, it also helped because for PhDs, you know, like you want to publish, and I hadn't I hadn't had a journal or conference article. You know, we did a few things, a few conference presentations on EMC, but no like journal articles and stuff. So for me, it was good. It allowed me to learn and they gave you money every time you gave an idea that got filed. So I remember okay. one, one year I was I, I just have to interject real quick yeah. <laughs> because we're talking about patents and lawyers and new technologies. Yeah. So for people who are listening, could you tell us what a patent really is? What is mm. that? Oh, okay. So a patent is, um, it's so when the constitution was formed, there was insight to, to wanting to create, to encourage innovation and research. So if you spend a lot of money on research and innovation and you have no way to protect it, meaning like I come up with this great idea and someone else just opens shops and starts doing it. It's a problem. It's a problem. So a patent was a legal way to um, not give you the right to give you the right to prevent others from using, selling, or doing your invention for a set term, which is usually 20 years. So it gave you, gave you a monopoly. And so this monopoly was, was intended to encourage people to invest in research and to be innovative because you could have some protection for whatever you came up with. Mm-hmm. 
The patent itself is a is a document that captures through the specification and the claims some inventive idea. It's novel, it's non-obvious, and it's useful. So you can't patent like a bomb. You can't you have to patent something that's useful. And so you know, a lawyer who has taken the patent examination with USPTO is what you, you need to do the um, patent bar it's called to be able to prosecute, to be able to work with the USPTO on any idea, either write the idea up or take it through the, the process of dance that you do with the patent office <laughs> to get an issued asset that you can use. Um, so the, the legal part is like the lawyers or the people who draft the idea, they look at the claim, the claim is the boundary around what you really are trying to protect. If you go to court, the claim is what's going to, you know, be the thing that people consider. So that's mm -hmm. how the legal, technical, and even, I guess, societal, because it's in our, our, our laws, all come together. Because without it, people would say, well, you know, if I do this and spend a million dollars, someone's just going to steal it. Yeah. So when some, but the, now the onus is on you to figure out what's patentable to go seek patent protection and to keep your patent asset maintained, like pay your fees with USPTO. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So welcome. what, so what do you wish that more people knew about the patent process or about patenting in general? Cause you don't see a whole lot of people who look like us putting things out. So what do you wish that people yeah. knew? So, so that ties into like some of the work at NVIDIA and diversity mm -hmm. inventorship. First, I, I wish people realized that different perspectives are so much, so valuable in patents because in, in technology development in general, different perspectives are, are needed. We need women's perspectives. We need minorities perspectives. We, we need different views. The way we see the world is uniquely, um, impacted on the lens or our career, our journey, our experience. So I might see a problem someone else doesn't see um, because they don't have that experience or cultural relevance that I have. So that's the first thing. I don't, I, I would want people to know that from a, to have a patent is not a um, unachievable. It is something, if you're in an innovative space, if you learn how to look for and spot ideas, you can start to see or try to capture those ideas. I recommend the patent process is expensive, that people in their current role be involved in the patent program in your company, if nothing else, but to gain experience on the process of disclosing the idea, pitching the idea, getting the idea to, um, that the company supports it and wants to go file it, and then working with outside counsel to do that, and then working through the office actions as you take it to to the end to try to get the issue asset and then even a step further taking the asset and really using it in a as a as a valuable asset either you have a um if you're in a company now you have an asset maybe the company can license or they can assign it they can sell it or if you want to do a startup you have something that you know analysts will look and say hey we'll give you some money you have you have some some real asset um so I would want people to know that. And I want people to know that we didn't like, um, although I have a lot, um, there are women who, um, black women who, you know, who invented before me. 
And I didn't prep this question, um, but the woman who created the first sanitary napkin was a person of color. She was an African-American woman and saw a need. And if you, like I, I, when I give talks, I often talk about her because the market for personal products in that space is huge. The, the value of that market, but unfortunately, um, she's not getting any revenue, you know, but, wow. um, so I just want you to know, like, it's not unachievable, it's doable. And it's something that if you're in a company, find out about your patent program in your company and let that be the first step to learn. If you're in the university, go to your technology transfer office and figure out how you can learn more for free. Before you have to pay yes. an outside counsel to, to, to help you. I think the thing that was, oh, go ahead, Jeremy. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I think the thing about the whole process that was the most insightful that you told me was that you don't have to actually build or make the thing Correct. in order to have a patent on it. And I was like, oh, wow, I can just imagine and write down well, how it would happen right. and have a logical yeah. set of steps for how it would happen. Yes. You remember, gosh, that's I do. I remember exactly what we wrote you, up too. I won't mention it here, just in case somebody. Oh, it's, it's two thousand and five. It's but okay. I don't. I don't think Remind it went me. through. I don't know because I was still okay. again twenty one, maybe even twenty at the time. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know words, but I remember it was something. It was really cold at IBM, and it was something to like make the um like the way the fans blow out hot air out of the sides, blow up through the keyboard to keep your hands warm as you oh were typing. God, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, because the device has so many slots. Yes. And actually, we need to cool the system. So why can't we just redirect the heat? Yep. Yeah, I actually kind of remember that. Yeah, but again, the summer is like, not. what, eight weeks, 10 weeks for us? Yeah. And I, I don't think I understood the gravity of the situation of like how this, like the process and all of that, but I definitely remember it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you were like, we don't have to make it. We can just, I was no, like, oh. That's the thing. It's <laughs> like, um, you can show, it has to be reducible to practice. So you can't say something like, you're going to walk on water. Without saying how it's going to work, right? You know, unless the Lord going to help you, you're exactly. not going to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so you need to be able to just implement with the car current technology that's out. So right. you, even though you have something that's novel, it could be pieces of things put together in a non-obvious um, way. Yeah. So my question is about you know just you actually. Um, so you passed the patent bar. Are you an attorney? Like I, we didn't talk about you going to law school. <laughs> and so, you know, most of the people who I know who worked or who are affiliated with like the patent office are people who got law degrees. Um, but I know there are some who don't. So right. can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. So I think a lot of people may not be aware that you do not, um, to become a patent agent, you don't have to go to law school. You do pass the same uh, bar that the attorney passes in the patent space. They take a regular bar and then they take this patent bar to become a patent attorney. But um, there are like some requirements. If you're a computer science or engineering background or math, you can sit for. So they do have some requirements. Like you have to have a certain amount of course load or have a degree, like an undergraduate degree. And if you have that, you can sit for it and um, become an agent. And then you could put a shingle out if you want to run your own business and write applications for people. That's one option. But, for, you know, you can. 
You do not have to go to law school. Now, if you want to litigate, you want to go to court, and you want to argue if this is this if this infringing, not infringing, then you 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 need to be a lawyer. Yeah. And so, but there's a different amount of time committed to going mm-hmm. to law school than it is to taking the patent bar. And so, you okay. know, salaries could be different, a little bit different too. But it, um, I like to tell everyone um, about one of my friends, Braxton Davis, who saw the need to have more diversity in the patent profession. So he established a program where you apply to the program. I think you have to have engineering undergrad and you get to take classes. He's assembled a group of uh, IP attorneys because this really came up because I said to him, I really don't know any attorneys that look like me. And he was like, we got to fix that. So when he told me about the program, I was like, I'd like to, to audit the program. He was like, well, um, I don't think you need the program, you know. But I was like, I get so much joy. Like I go, I attend the sessions. They're like, he has classes that are taught by both outside counsel and inside counsel. Me, like people at companies and people at law firms, they take you through claim drafting, office action, the things that, you know, a person would do. Uh, It's a competitive program you apply. And I think he had the first graduating class last year. Then he uses his network to place people. Mm. That's amazing. And these are six figure jobs that he places you. So he's it's stringent and he's hard on the folks like in demand of your time to really do the things to make the program our graduates successful, his graduates successful. But that's just an example of the uh, need to have more uh, diversity in the patent uh, practice. Pipeline. <laughs> Yes, yeah. people literally who are, who are on the other side who are capturing the ideas and working with inventors. And we need both. We need inventors. We yeah. need practitioners. And then we need people to take these ideas that they have and go do some startups. But that's a different topic. And we will link to that. Um, if you're listening, you can look at our website. It's the National Council on Patent Practicum. And uh, literally on the first page, it says diversity in patent law. The pipeline is broken. So the fact that you said pipeline, Jeremy, is it's completely, exactly. it's right on. Yep. Yeah. I want to know more about what you're doing at NVIDIA today. Like, what what do you do? So first, I I have to say I'm blessed to be at a company like NVIDIA, and I do not say that lightly. I was at USAA. After leaving IBM, I went to USAA, and I really, I helped establish their patent practice in the chief technology office. You know, there was no one that was saying, like, there are things we are doing. Like, they had some patents because they had an innovation lab. But there was no one that was like trying to organize this and align this with things that are coming out the business. And we had, uh, they hired a VP who was African-American woman who was running that team and she was great to work with. And I did that. And I actually, you know, when NVIDIA came along, like I wasn't looking, um, I, you know, my, the manager that hired me in who he was, I had Chuck Oaks was the best manager besides my current manager. But Chuck Oaks was the best manager I ever had. And when I interviewed and went to US, USAA, 
Uh, I met him. He was like a real Texan. He had on big hats, cowboy, <laughs> cowboy boots and jeans. But he was wow. a man. He was a Christian. He was a man of God. And he was like, you know, very supportive in the interview process. I was one of the first people that USA hired to work remotely. I never lived in San wow. Antonio. I flew. So he was like, are you willing to fly? And I was like, yes. I, I came at least once a quarter as big projects came up. But I had been working at remote for IBM for a long time and my managers were remote. So I was very good at that. And um, he had passed away, retired and passed mm. away. And so I had a new manager that wasn't as good as Chuck. Uh, um, he was a challenge, you know. He, and then my last manager, I had some good managers in between. But um, I, you know, one day I got a call from a recruiter and she was, you know, she was like, I'm from NVIDIA. And I was like, tell me what the role is. And she said, oh, no, I'm, uh, this is not that, I'm paraphrasing, this is not that kind of party. She said, I want to know you. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know. Interesting. Yes, different, very different. <laughs> right. And she asked me, she asked me about myself, about my family, about my aspirations. What am I doing at USA? So I think NVIDIA is a place for you. Mm. And so she, you know, she there was no specific role. She she reached within the company and got visibility for me at NVIDIA. And then it came down to really considering going or not. And uh, I took that role. They created this role for me. I worked with my mentor, uh, my mentor from IBM. I don't want to say his name. Wow, publicly, but He was a cool. black vice president who had retired and I stayed in touch with him for over the years, I, I'm still in touch with him. We went through some vetting processes. I met my manager, and by now I could tell, like I thought he would be a good manager, and he he really is. So my role there is uh, I sit in legal, but um, and mostly everyone else are, is they are attorneys, patent attorneys. But I also work out with engineering and, and research. So I have the unique opportunity to talk with them and collaborate like, uh, and understanding the work that they're doing, which the attorneys do too. But I think being an inventor, being a PhD in a technical area and being a patent agent was a unique combination. Yeah. So that's my role, bridge the gap between engineering and legal. Look for, um, use my inventive side to help the other people who have things see unique combinations of the technologies. They may think about patenting just straight something, but like, I think one thing I've been challenged is to think about how can we combine these things or look at this thing in a fresh new way. So that's, that's my role. And the, the thing I love about the company is like, you can do things beyond your role. So the pathway to AI, that program was an idea that I had, when all that stuff happened at Google with Tim, Tim New and um, all mm -hmm. the things she was going through, I realized even at, you know, these companies that have AIs, like there's not a lot of people who are actually working who understand like how machine learning works. I mean, because Stanford right. is like the top school. If you didn't go to Stanford or, you know, UC Berkeley you may not have had that experience. So I had the idea of why don't we try to take our technical talent people who are already within the company who uh, and create a program that they can gain some real world experience. 
So the notion was we have unlatent talent that we can take and do something, help them to, to get some exposure and figure out if they could, if they, if, if machine learning or AI would be a path for them at NVIDIA, not somewhere else at our mm, company. It's very targeted and directed. Yeah, it was very targeted. <laughs> and so um, I re- reached out to our diversity and belonging lead and was like, hey, I want to try a pilot. So we did pilot the program. And what we did was we worked across the business to find projects, the real, real world projects. And we said it would be a tiered approach that we would do a match between a mentee and a mentor. And the the tier could be like, if you have a certain set of skills, your your experience in the program might be heightened. You might actually work on the, the actual product. If you don't have as much experience, well, you take some classes in the beginning, you have somebody to talk to about the classes. And you might just learn by attending work meetings where you understand how the different components of the business work together to deliver something. And so we actually had a class of, uh, eight and we graduated that class and we had some good experience. We had, we focused the first wave, um, was focused on women. And so like, I I don't know of another company where I could reach out to the lead of diversity and inclusion and belonging. They say, okay, let's try it and have the support of my manager to do it. that yeah. is amazing. Like, I don't know of a company either where they would take such an immediate and targeted action because a lot of times people want to see the immediate value of something, but it's like, no, we're going to invest in these people and hope that they come back to us. And even if they don't, we have put people out into the world who have this experience so yeah. they can make the AI experience better. Yeah. So it's just been uh, for me uh, a place like you know so my background we've already talked about is electromagnetics and when i was at usa i became interested in augmented intelligence like the use of uh, pairing ai solutions with humans to make the best output and so like i learned that these people that i work with i feel so blessed because they are like cutting ed- edge mm-hmm. they're doing like i get to meet people who are doing things that are announced on the news I'm wow. like wow and they're just it's like people are so collaborative it's a very collaborative environment very like um open to to solving hard problems not being afraid to fail but fail quickly and to to um not repeat things uh by through, through collaboration, make sure that like everyone is aware of what's happening. We have this thing called the top five where, you know, I read top five from both, uh, very, very senior people and very junior people. And you learn a lot. Yeah. Well, Kyla and I have our connection with NVIDIA too, being where our day jobs are from. Um, <laughs> The co-founders of NVIDIA is a graduate from the university where we work. So yeah. Oh. He's donated quite a bit of money. Jensen. Yes. No. Jensen. No? no. Which, which, can you say? <laughs> okay, it sounds like you might not be able to say, so let's keep going. Yeah. We don't want to you know, have <laughs> we don't want to put them out there. Interest, right, that's true. That, you know, we do have a lot of support for AI at our university where it's yeah. been like transformative for us. They want to be known 
as a place where AI is integrated across all disciplines. Yes. And, and we've both really been involved cool. in efforts towards that direction at the university. It's really cool to watch it happen, right? Like, yeah. like you're yeah. saying, these things are on the news. And a lot of it is because companies like NVIDIA are tr genuinely invested in seeing AI be something that people understand, not just interact with every it's, day and have no idea that they're actually doing it. Yeah. Right. Um, we are but, on like the verge, like, like right now, our kids will live in a different world oh, than sure. what we live in. AI is in lots of things. It's, mm -hmm. it's doing lots of things for the good or the bad. It's here and has a lot of potential. And so, like, I'd love to see, you know, the broad community uh, participate in this change, this shift that's happening. So, yeah, there's a whole push for explainable AI, which oh, I think yeah. is amazing because um, so many times I listen to a lot of podcasts and like so many times people will start off with the topic. Like I was literally listening to one today where they were talking about using intelligent agents to help deescalate. Uh, problems with the police and somehow the host turned that into robots are going to have guns and kill people and I'm like that's not even what that yeah. is you know so yeah. there's so much misinformation and the movies did a really good job of entertaining us about AI but also misinforming you the community you Will Smith and I, I know if I could shake Will Smith's neck about I robot. Like, yeah, it's, it's like nobody needs to think about these sentient agents turning on them. That's always us. the conversation. Like, yeah. or, or we need to turn it around and say, "Hey, let's get involved on the ground floor so we can shape right. a more diplomatic and equitable society for everybody." Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My my claim to fame with AI is that well, I always tell people on this podcast I'm a fake computer scientist. Jeremy always denies her computer science involvement. Come on over to the wild she's, Oh, she's here. She's here. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Like I have NSF funding. That's about she's a AI. computer scientist. Everyone knows her in the CS community. She's pretending. But I I do love that you know I am in a place where it's like I get to learn about these things, right? And then I get to go into middle school classrooms and talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's talk about how this relates to you or talk with teachers about yeah. how they can integrate it into their curriculum. Because if we don't start with the babies, you know, yes. and get them informed now, it's going to be really, really hard for us to be able to ensure that we have the workforce we need. Absolutely. Um, for where we're headed. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So you mentioned, <laughs> I don't know either, but it's a, it's a good landing place. But uh, you mentioned that, you know, your role here, you get to transition into things that are more in line with like your creative side and uh, more artistic side. So can you talk about how you get to pull on those skills more now? Well, um, I mean, I'm still writing patents. I'm still involved in learning and the creative side, I guess at work would be, um, trying to figure out how to learn, how to relay, how to pitch in this new environment. Like, you know, cause you have to, you, you can see something that's novel, but seeing how it fits, like everything that's, everything that's patentable, you don't go after because it's expensive. So mm. one thing when you are, you have to be creative of how you see how it fits or might fit and what might be the value. 
But when speaking about creativity in general, I, you know, I know I, you know, I describe myself here as a emerging technology junkie, which is true because I do like to read and learn and try things and sandbox stuff. But I also have a creative side, which I didn't know. Um, uh, that's beyond, that's not tech, techy per se. Um, we when still I want to hear about it. Okay. <laughs> when I left IBM, uh, it was almost like a cleansing your soul. And, mm-hmm. uh, it reminded me of times when I was like a little girl, my parents, I mentioned came from the South to the North, but it too, um, most kids who's, who have that experience would go spend uh, summers with their grandparents. Mm-hmm. So they'd send you down and you'd learn the culture, the Southern culture. And I remember my, you know, spending time, my father's family, we owned a farm. We owned a farm in Tennessee and I would go besides not being able to watch any kind of TV. I want to watch and whenever I want to watch or do it or turn the air conditioner on for a long period of time. Oh, They'd be like, go to the outside and get you a glass of water. Um, oh no! <laughs> I learned from I saw my grandmother to make ends meet. She would take in clothes from a lo- local white family, and she would wash those clothes, hang them on the line, and press them, and then put it all nice in the basket, and they come pick it up. And that always impressed me because I was like, you know, like I always felt like, oh gosh, she's still doing clothes. You know, you know, we own the land. Why is she still doing this? so? Combined with my my mother's mother who made soap, you know, she made soap. Um, when I was making the transition to USAA, giving up the dream of being an IBM fellow, distinguished engineer, and realizing that I'm going to go work in the company, which I have been at IBM almost 14 years. So it was hard to, out of school, it was hard to make the transition to a new company. What if I don't know anybody? It's like going to school the first day. I won't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> I won't have my mentors, but my one mentor who I mentioned, he stayed. So I'll be with you. You know, I'll stay with you. Okay. Mm. But, um, so I started a soap business and it took like, during that time, I learned how soap, cold processed soap is made with lye and oil. And, and then I got really good. And then, and I started selling my soap at a, uh, store here in, um, Durham, North Carolina. And, you know, I was doing well, selling it online. My girlfriend helped make my website and I could do e-commerce online. Nice. And the margins were very small, but the reward in this process was learning the customer and learning, like, you know, I was in school, like, uh, uh, technology commercialization. Cause you know, I had been thinking I'm creating all these patterns. Is there anything I should probably maybe take to market? And if mm. I do, which should, how do I do it? So I learned a lot about customers in the process. Um, so post COVID stopped selling in the shop. You know, I just, you know, sell here and there. Um, but the one thing I want, would like to do with that is to make that into a, a nonprofit that supports women in need. So I'd like to somehow take my soap business and turn it into a 503C. And so if there's anyone out here who knows how to do that, who has an interest in looking for a black person or black woman to partner with, I like to do that. That's um, something I like to do from the creative side. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Do you want to shout out the the website or the name of your soap company so folks can find uh, it's it? It's called Innovative Organics. 
and my website might be defunct, but it was innovativeorganics.us. <laughs> okay. The other thing is, um, I want to thank you guys for the t-shirt that you sent me. Um, I didn't have it on for the podcast. Uh, I opened it, uh, right before. Oh, no worries. I, it's for you I, to have. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, I was showing on camera. I don't have it right here. Should we break and I show it? Can you show it's okay. it? Have, yeah, they've seen it. And I have it okay. on this blanket. I can hold it up. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, yes. Yeah. So like like you guys, I um I I have been creating these um graphics that kind of breathe life into the reality of black women in patents. And I'm waiting to kind of like spin that. I have uh, my graphics, I have my, uh, the words, the, the messaging. And so I hope to release my shirt, uh, and for that shirt to support the nonprofit. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, to give it away, to get, get it up with some kind of funds. So. Yeah, we can chat offline cause we have a whole store and we've done lots oh, of I'd love that. merch and I'd products love that. So we can, and we can also chat about that offline. Oh, I, I love that. What a blessing. Queen. Yes, I like bag a lot. So. Oh, this is so great. This I'm, is really good. I don't know how Kyla was able to convince you to come talk to us because I know you're expensive. And, <laughs> and we're well, so grateful. That? We're so grateful. Well, well, one thing is like, you know, it. I, 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 Charles Barkley may not think so, but you do have a responsibility when you reach a certain level to be um, still very personable and to be inspiring. No one gets where they are alone. That's right. I believe God sends people, and I do mean the God of the Bible, so I'm going to shout out the saints. <laughs> Sean Doe. God, all right. <laughs> uh, he brings people in your path. And so like every time, you know, I get offers and sometimes I say, no, Kyle was so patient. She was like, don't you remember me from IBM? And don't you remember? And I was like, you know, I feel I actually, when I, when I reflected on it, on my run, I was, you know, I'm like, Lord, thank you. Thank you for not letting me just get to the point where it's like, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Like, yeah, let me keep it down here. And keep it on the knees and saying, Lord, thank you. Bring the next person behind me. And like um, you mentioned, like, you know, I'm a little bit more mature than you all. And I am thinking about legacy. I won't be here always. And I want I want to be remembered to be like trying to inspire and encourage the next generation. Because the talent, God is giving it to the people we need it. We have so many problems that we need good solutions for. We need people who are able. And so. Absolutely. Me, That's a word right you. there. That's a whole word. That's a whole uh -oh. word. I don't even <laughs> want to say nothing afterwards because that's a word, period, hard stop. <laughs> so thank you. We really appreciate you sharing your story, all of it with us. I know yes. there's much more that you could have shared, but I do think, you know, you, you've done what God has called you to do. You know, being here, sharing where you've been, how you can navigate, you know, different structures and things like that. That's what we exist here for, too. So um, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners where to find you on the Internet. If you're on the Internet actively, posting um, anything, sharing anything. 
Yeah. Well, Any I'm programs. LinkedIn <laughs> is like, that's my go-to. I guess I should be doing more. I don't think Twitter's the place to be right now. Oh but I, should... I think it's Mastodon now, but uh, we're, we're yeah, not there yet. I, but um, we'll but put I, your LinkedIn on the episode I'm link. Definitely on LinkedIn. And um, I guess, you know, I'm old school. Like if you reach out to me on LinkedIn or connect or something to email me, I'll definitely reply. Okay. Cool. Are there any programs that you want people to know about or anything upcoming you want people to participate in? Um, I don't have anything pending that I'm actually organizing myself. Um, I would encourage people to check out the patent practitioner program that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not awesome. much, sorry. No, that's fine. That's completely fine. I just want to make sure we didn't uh, leave anything out. But yeah, like Jeremy said, we are so grateful and thankful to have you here today on a Friday. <laughs> so this is a, it's definitely been awesome. Like I've known a lot about your story, but even getting to hear more about like the path of how you got different places and the thought process and how all of this was orchestrated by like God putting people in your path to direct you in different ways. Like, I don't know about anybody else, but I was inspired. (laughs) So yeah, this, this is good. It's a good like cap to the end of the week. And hopefully our paths will cross again so we can keep in touch. Well, if it's one, I'd like to close with just one last thing. Yeah. You have to work really hard. So that's a given. But don't work till you're out of breath. Mm. Always chase your dreams. You know, go after them. Don't be scared to make the change. Change your lane. It's all right. And as you run along, reach back and pull somebody with you. Or realize it's a relay and you're going to pass the baton. So thanks, y'all. Thank you. As always, you can find us on our website, modernfigurespodcast.com. Send your questions to ask us at modernfigurespodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter. Kyla is at Dr. Underscore Kyla, and I am at Jeremy Waysom. Visit modernfiguresinc.com to learn more about our nonprofit organization aimed at promoting and engaging with women and girls interested in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and of course, computing. Until next time, stay moisturized, hydrated, mind your business, and protect your peace.